HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome to the Heritage Radio Network on tour at Charleston Wine and Food 2020-22. Is that three different decades? 2020, 22, <laughs> 2022. Uh, I'm Sam Ben and we are broadcasting live from the heart of the culinary village. Welcome to the Grape Nation. Our guests today are Jane Lopes and Jonathan Ross from Legend Australian Wine Imports. They are specializing in curating a list of great wines from Australia. All right. So before we get started, I just wanted to ask you something. Why is it that so many sommeliers just get off the floor and either make wine or become (laughs) importers? I mean, I know it's a grueling thing, but, you know, why that? Why not become an investment banker? (laughs) You just got to go back to school for that, don't you? So, so what's the reason? You know, I think it's... Oh, that scared me as well. Um, I think it's sort of twofold. You know, I think for us, there is the, the element of um, getting older, you know, just not quite hanging as well on the floor for, you know, 50, 60 plus hours a week. Um, but then it's also, you know, it's also finding new elements of this industry to engage with. And I think for us with John winemaking and us importing, it was, you know, it was really, um, you know, exhilarating to find a new way to engage with the industry, a new sort of side of it to learn. And so I think, um, yeah, I would say it's those, those two things. I think also in, in a restaurant, as you progress through the restaurant industry, you maybe, and I don't know, you, you take on different leadership roles and respond. I don't know. I always loved, being in a restaurant that was just there was so much energy and and like not party but there was so much life and energy and I think there's a point where when you become when you wear more responsibility in a restaurant sometimes you end up being separated from some of that carefree energy that goes along with being in the community in a restaurant so I feel like restaurants change for people as they continue to stay in them um I think also for me, I don't want to work in a restaurant again unless I'm financially committed to that restaurant. So you wouldn't chalk it up entirely as ageism, although you don't want to be an old guy schlepping boxes up and down stairs and working 50, 60, 70 hours. 
I mean, when you're 46. I don't know that our current trajectory means we're going to be working less when we're when I'm older. But I do know that. No, a different work though. Yeah. That's sure, that's sure. my point. Yeah. You know, and it is your business. So yeah. I would I would go back to work in a restaurant immediately, um, if it was kind of the right fit and had different levels of control. And Does input. that mean ownership? Like you wouldn't yeah. do it unless yeah. you wouldn't go to some high-profile restaurant and take on the program. That's your past that. I mean, yeah, I don't... I feel like between us, the amount of time we've spent working in restaurants, it's like... It would be more appropriate for us to own a restaurant, not an import business. You think so? <laughs> you agree with them? I mean, that's our experience. Is what, right. Yeah, but... <laughs> yeah. I I mean, John would go work in a restaurant again. I think You're I would done. have a harder time with it. I, I think just physically, I'm, I am enjoying not having those hours anymore. I mean, physically, I don't know. You know, I think you would get used to it again, but I think... Yeah. Yeah, I mean... It's I, enough. Yeah. Been yeah. there, did it. Let's give this a try. Yeah. All right, one more Psalm question. So, both of you, for your careers, were Psalms at very high-profile restaurants. I mean, Australia, the best. In the States, the best. I don't have to roll stuff off. And you were tasked with selling very expensive wines, back vintages, trophies, you know, all of that stuff, certain type of clientele, certain type of wine. And now you've sort of taken a a big turn where you're more conscious of the producer, price point, the story and all of that. I mean, that's a big shift. I mean, was that always your sensibility? And, like, now here's a chance to execute it? Because, let's face it, a lot of your winemakers are smaller. You know, they're sustainable, you know, good farming, low intervention guys and all that. That's not the wines you were selling. So were you ready for the shift? Is it something you wanted to do? I mean, you got to argue this point with me a little. (laughs) Um, you know, I think the more we drank and sold the great wines of the world, the less we um, needed to keep doing that. You know, it certainly was a really valuable experience, and I think we feel both both feel very lucky to have have the opportunity to have done that. But I think for us, you know, there's so much more joy and pleasure about having these really close relationships with you know, a couple dozen producers who we've, you know, we check in with them about how harvest is going and we know the intricacies of each bottle year in and year out. We've been to the vineyards, um, you know, having that really sort of close relationship with a handful of producers rather than like and also, knowing enough about. But the type of producers too. I mean, you could do that with a guy who owns a big chateau in Bordeaux, but it's different, right? I mean, you're dealing with a whole different, you know, level of winemakers um is it more satisfying i mean completely i will say i think when you're in those restaurants and you're selling really expensive trophies and things that you're told to learn about and told are great that's not a perspective built on your experiences that's uh uh industry long critical you know critics are telling you this everyone knows drc is special before they ever see a bottle of it. Right. So you're told how to think in that setting. So I feel like we've been able to take what we've learned from working with 
maybe benchmark, wine benchmarks around the world and create our own perspective using that context rather than just, you know, repeating someone other people's industry perspectives. You know, right. you go to a, a restaurant or a wine shop and you see the same wines everywhere. Like, those wines could be really great, but is the person that's buying those wines to put them on the list, are they buying them because they really believe they're great or because they see them on Instagram or because right. they think they're someone else told them they're great and right. they need to be cool? Now, another point I want to make, and I don't want to get into it at all. Jane and I, we got into it at some point. But both of you were pretty heavily tied to the quartermaster sommeliers. John, you are, or however you want to title yourself, <laughs> you, you passed it. And Janie, you were virtually there. I mean, we know that story. You could listen to the show. Um, that was a part of your life that fit into what you were doing at these restaurants. I mean, to me, that's sort of in the rearview mirror. That whole court thing, that has nothing to do or not a lot to do with what you're doing, right? No, I mean, we, I think both of us found our time with the quartermaster sommeliers was valuable, but more for what we, we did with that, not because of, of the organization, but because of our own self-study and growth. Um, right. You know, we still enjoy good blind tasting, and of course we value good service, and we want to be mentors for... Yeah, but they don't have a franchise on that. They teach exactly. it. I mean, exactly. those are values that you worked with on, you know, with them. Um, Speaking of 11 Madison Park, a former colleague of ours is walking by. Lurking. There she is. We oh. attract We attract all the uh, famous and good-looking people. Um, all right, so let's move off this Psalm crap and everything. So... I'm probably not wrong on this, but when people think of wines of Australia, they they think of Shiraz, right? Shiraz. And <laughs> there's a lot more going on than that. I mean, you import Shiraz, but you import a lot of other stuff. So give me like a little primer on what you're doing. Varietals, you know, the type of things. We're, we're actually drinking stuff, and maybe to start getting into that, yeah. let's talk about the first wine you're drinking, which when I say when people think of Australia, they think of Shiraz. This ain't that. I do want no. to say one thing about Shiraz, Shiraz, Syrah, so on. We think Australia makes one type of expression of Syrah, Shiraz, and that's it. There's 65 wine regions across Australia. Every single one of them makes, grows Syrah on some level. There is a greater diverse. Australia is the most expansive and dynamic study into that single grape than anywhere in the world. We think that the Rhone, obviously the Rhone is the benchmark in many ways. I make wine with the Rhone in my thoughts all the time. But there's six appellations that produce Syrah only wines and so on, or you know, and you've got this one little region. Here's a much broader and dynamic snapshot. So when we think that Australia does one thing where so far off what it actually does with that grape. So yeah, I mean, it is very fair to say Australia does Shiraz incredibly well, but it's not necessarily what you're thinking, you know? They do right. that bold Barossa style really well, but then there's everything from like Shiraz Petnat to like really savory styles to like super light and like chillable red. It's like, it's everything. So um, give me a reference. A lot of this stuff that you just talked about is this stuff that's 
being made in the last three, five, eight, ten years, or it's sort of been going on, but nobody really brought it here. I mean, because Australia shut down for a while. The overblown Shiraz ran its course and people forgot about it, and there's a resurgence in a very good way, including what you guys are doing. I think the path to the Australia we know today started in this, you know, you talk to Australian winemakers and they always say, oh, they're, they're in a place where there's no specific regional laws about what they can grow and how they have to make it, so they're open to everything, there's no rules. But there were always self-imposed rules on how a wine needed to taste or measure up or right. look. And it's been a long process to where the industry is now at a point, and I think probably in the last 15 years has really emerged from those self-imposed rules. So I think it's been a long process, but it's, it's, there's so much confidence in the Australian wine identity in Australia that um, it's, it's, it's separate from everything. It's unique and it's singular in its own way. And um, Is that a generational thing? Yes. As younger people, maybe in an existing family or come into the business, they just think about it differently? Totally. You know, a wider range of variety and region and taking yeah. chances. And they've been able to grow up in a more mature wine industry where they're right. maybe they worked for a large producer. Like we have an awesome Tasmanian producer. Um, she's actually from New Zealand, but she lives and works in Tasmania and makes wine in Tasmania. She worked for pretty large producers in McLaren Vale and the Hunter Valley before she went to do what she's doing now. And that big conventional commercial thing that we know of informs her ability to care for her products and her land the way she does now. Um, so it's like a required stepping stone. Right. So, Jane, John just mentioned Tasmania. Um, talk to me about what you're doing. Like, let's talk about some of the regions. Uh, you know, I think a bunch of wines that you're importing come from one area, but you're all over the place. So tell me about some of those places. And we got into it a little, but talk to me about varietals, you know, beyond Shiraz. We just talked about a pet net. I think you told me there's four different varietals in it or something. Yeah, so we're drinking right now the uh, Naringa pet net. Naringa is a, a fully certified biodynamic regenerative farm in the Adelaide Hills. Um, this pet net is a Viognier, a pink-skinned variant of Semillon, Syrah, and Pinot Noir. Um, and, you know, it's... Nuringa actually mainly does really compelling, site-specific Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Syrah. Um, so this is, you know, it's... I think this is the highest quality pet nat I've ever had. You know, it's just like the... the it's just phenomenal. Is, is there really a lot is. of pet nat in Australia, or it's there's not a... There's there's yeah. a good amount of you know I'd say there's probably as much pet net in Australia as there is in France. Yeah, I'm um, not comparing anywhere, but, but like what Jane's saying is like this is like a biodynamic producer in Burgundy also making a fun pet net with their produce that they have in their you know, and, and to kind of like put it into a perspective of who this producer is, where it's kind of an an introduction wine, but it's it's really uh, like a door opener for them. Yeah. But, and then other things, we've got a single vineyard, Sinso, to taste all D-I-N-S-A-U-L-T, Sinso. Yeah. Yeah. Which Wait. is a great, I think we'll see more and more of the year, in the years to come, both in Australia and I think other warm climate 
regions. You see a lot of... Um, is it blended a lot or more people are starting to make predominantly More people Cinzo. are starting to make uh, varietal Cinso. Um, and, and I think Australia, South Africa, you know, U.S. Good to, places to grow. Chile, yeah. Because you... I mean, this comes from the Barossa Valley, you know, a, a pretty warm climate region. And it's... 11% alcohol, it's bright, fresh, high acid. It's, you know, it's one of the grapes that really can make light, delicate, acid-driven wines in warm climates. So I okay. think uh, I what think we'll about, be more, um, more of it. Cabernet Sauvignon? Australia has incredible Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, well, now, Australia's been making Cab Sauv for a long time and just we haven't seen it or yeah. more people are making it. Yeah. And it was, Cabernet was first planted, what, in the 1860s, 1840s in Australia? So is it grown in different regions or it's predominantly, well, you know, like Napa's got a lot of Cab, Bordeaux has a lot of Cab. Is it like that? I mean, you could find Cabernet in every state in Australia that produces wine, Tasmania, the Yarra Valley in Victoria, um, its most famous South regions Australia. in Australia are Margaret River in Western Australia and uh, Coonawarra, which is in on the Limestone Coast in South Australia. Um, but, I mean, I think Yarra Valley makes absolutely incredible Cabernet Sauvignon. There's a region just north of Coonawarra called Rattenbully that is similar similar soils to Coonawarra, which is kind of similar to... Bellet? What's it called? Rattenbully. W-R-A-T-T-O-N-B-U-L-L-Y. Um, those so, would probably be my kind of... A question about cab. So, Napa, Bordeaux, Parker made these big, unctuous cabs. Shiraz got tagged for that for a while. What are the cabs like in Australia? I mean, I know they may vary, but is it everything to restrain to big or... Less big, less of it that. Is, so really... big is not the big descriptor. No, right. that's They're... good. Shiraz, Shiraz is the grape utilized to make the biggest of the big. Right. So Cabernet is is tends to be more restrained. You know, like in the '90s, Australia definitely went through its period of having a little bit more oaky, a little bit more extracted Cabernet Sauvignon. But I think now it's really at a point where. Um, it's balance, it's elegance, it's savory qualities, it's balanced oak. Um, you know, there's, there is a spectrum of that, but I think it's definitely not, you know, it's not the Napa paradigm. Right, which is, I'm glad to hear. Um, so we talked about Sinzol, we talked about four varietals in the Pet Nat, we talked about Cab. Anything else out there that's exciting you guys? I think that Chardonnay. That you're importing, that you're loving? Chardonnay, Australia is, it, it's... Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, but I, I think especially when we look at our portfolio, Chardonnay is, I never was like Chardonnay, Chardonnay. It, it, Australia's ability to create compelling, interesting, site-specific, delicious Chardonnay is is almost peerless in my own very biased opinion. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'd say you, Australia in general, and this is something we talk about, you get a really nice mix of like the quote-unquote minerality Structure Why does that everybody quote-unquote that? Uh, because there's no real term, but it works. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. Um, but also, there's just, a, there's just an accessibility of fruit to Australian wine. And I don't mean jammy, overripe, alcoholic fruit. I just mean, like, just, like, pristine, juicy 
fruit with a huge depth of flavor that is um, really prevalent in, in Australian wine across the board that I think is just like, it's just awesome. You know, I think it's something that we were so Eurocentric when we lived in the U.S. and moving to Australia, we were just like, man, we've been missing out on this. This is like yeah, just really, really, it's complex, it's nuanced, but it's really pleasurable. It's great that you uh, feel this way. All right, let me shift towards business a little. So I was surprised John and I were talking off air. You know, I figured you guys had this big plan and you've been plotting this forever and, you know, you had the background and you're together. But that's not really, you know, how it played out. I mean, you put this business together fairly recently as an importer. It makes total sense. You both worked in Australia. You both have the background. Um, just give me the little chronology. I mean, when... When did you really start talking about it, and how quickly afterwards did you lay it down? Our first business, we wrote our first business plan while uh, probably within a year of being in Australia, and we realized it, and, and there was an interest in trying to start it while we were in Australia, and we realized we needed to come home and tell the story, um, and I think even before that, when we decided to go to Australia, you know, Jane had this awesome opportunity at Attica. I landed on my feet but didn't know it was going to happen. We didn't know why. There was no understanding of what was after Australia. We knew we were going there for three years, see what happens. And shortly thereafter... That's the part I'm referring to. You right. know, you guys have this great career there. Us. And there was no plans. Right. Australia told us what we were going to do. We went there and we realized that what we experienced needs to be shared with the world. and Or at least the U.S. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the first business plan was put together in eighteen. Numerous versions, tons of investor talks, um, and then we came back right at the beginning of COVID, and off to the races. Investors went away because of COVID. And so that was another question. What effect did COVID have on it? You had investors lined up, and that kind of changed the thing. But what about, you know, doing the business? What were retailer, restaurant, consumer habits? I mean, was it good for it? Was it a standstill? Um, you know, I think we learned lessons think in, quickly. Yeah, in hindsight, there are definitely benefits. I think clearly starting the company without investment meant that everything was sort of lean, and we were doing everything ourselves from you know, like balancing our own books to website design to you know everything was 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 the two of us. Um, which still is. So I can, I can build yeah. websites now. So if anyone needs a website built for hire. Um, oh, that's your new specialty? <laughs> which, again, you know, I think was, was, in hindsight, a really good thing. I think, you know, talking to distributors, a lot of people, like, sort of laughed at us. <laughs> and kind of like, why would we be taking on a new supplier right now? But in, in a way, it was also self-selective because we ended up working with, like, a bunch of great distributors who were like hungry and after it and who were really succeeding during the pandemic. Um, and it made us focus our book much more on retail because with our backgrounds, we, our first instinct is to think about wines for restaurants. Right. A list. So, so the pandemic the vibe, definitely made us think, okay, we got to put together a portfolio with retail in mind, which was clearly very smart. Um, we should have been thinking that anyway. So I think, you know, there are difficulties for sure, but I think also it, it steered us in the right direction in a number of ways. So you guys have the expertise. You've curated 
um, some great growers. You're importing them. I know education is important to you guys. That goes hand in hand with putting good wine on the tables. I know you guys have a strong moral compass. You know, your business is built around this statement of values, um, which when I ask you for the website, you could see it on your website. Um, what are the biggest challenges that it's just the two of you and there's a lot of ground to cover? I mean, is it beyond, is it all good, just frustrating? I think, I think, you know, for me, I don't, you know, with every yes that we receive, there's 10 no's before it. And I think looking past that is, is a, is it an internal challenge? Because I mean, it's sales, and it's hard sales. and Right, and it's you guys. And it's us, and you get door slammed in your face all the time. Um, and Does you the know, prospect of bringing somebody in to help you sell? Um, Not yet? I no? Think, you, you shake your head pretty quickly. Well, I mean, we don't. We're, we're barely paying ourselves. We right. can't pay well, someone Well, for that else. reason, you have I to I think we're both up. more control freaks that we're, than we'll let on. To, to, I, I think we don't have... Um, I don't think... I know I don't feel like we have what we're doing uh, in a consistent, manageable, even-paced way to bring someone. Like I feel like bringing someone in would be bad for their health. I mean, jokingly, <laughs> but like I feel like we need to create a you more. Because you Jane. We need to create a more I positive you, right, employment, Jane? you know, environment. Well, and I think I think we also have a different sort of approach towards sales. Well, we're not like. We're not salesmen. We're right. not out there strong. I need five calls a day yeah. and I need We you really here. think we want to expand the profile of Australian wine through, uh, through relationships, through education, through clearly, you know, bringing over some great products. You just have um, to be patient. Yeah. You know, it takes time. Yeah. And I think positive. given, you know, we've had wine in this country for f- about... Since October 2020. 16 months. Yeah. Um... We're in 14 states, you know, we're like, we're making it so work. So let, let's talk about that. So people listen to this podcast, they go, these these guys seem like good guys. These wines sound interesting. Where the hell do I get them? So let's talk about how the consumer can attempt and to access the wines. Is the website the best place? I mean, I think the website's good for knowing about what you're doing, the wines that you have, educating, but... Tell me, you know, how we should be able to try to find your wines. Um, one thing that we are about to, to launch, um, we've partnered with longtime friends of ours that have a retail shop in California to kind of properly comply with liquor and alcohol regulation um, to essentially be somewhat of a little, like, legend storefront where we right. can start doing a wine club and you know, some sort of direct-to-consumer outreach so that, because it's tough, we know, we know, we tell all of our producers where their wines are, but someone says, hey, I want this wine, then you got to call a distributor, find out where they live, and it's it's cumbersome and, and, and never really results in, in any real satisfaction for anyone, so putting that together. So there's, there's contact information on the website, and honestly, okay. I would say start there and talk to us and... We're, we have we're time good for at anyone. responding to our emails, yeah. and if someone reaches yeah, I out, think, and- I think that your level of business is you can interact. It could be a retailer, a restaurant, or just a consumer. You know, yeah. they can reach out to you. All right, we got to wrap up. Um, I want to thank 
Shane Lopes and John Ross, Jonathan Ross, from Legend. What's the full name? Legend Wine Imports. So we just like to say Legend. Legend is a okay. is a word you hear every day in Australia. You find a five dollar bill in your pocket. Legend. Someone gets you a cup of coffee. Thanks, Legend. Everyone's a legend in Australia. Um, so. So legend it is. Legend it is. Legend uh, Australia is the website. Legendaustralia.com. Okay. Yeah, that's important. Good yeah. job. <laughs> but I, you know, I've I've looked it up a bunch of times and I always land on it because I do Legend Wine, Legend Australia, yeah. but it is Legend Australia. So that's where to go. All right, let me do a quick wrap up. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network's uh, live coverage of the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. I'm Sam Ben Ruby from the Grape Nation. We're grateful to the festival for having HRM back in the Culinary Village for the sixth year running. You can listen to all our coverage on our podcast, Heritage Radio Network on Tour. You could find that on heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you listen to your podcast. Thank you again to Jane and John from Legend, and we will see you soon. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.